Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everybody. I'm Steve Orlands, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I am pleased today to be joined by Sarah Xu. Sarah taught at uh, SUNY, State University of New York, or we refer to it as SUNY here in New York. Uh, New Pulse taught economics, taught the Chinese economy, and is now a visiting scholar at uh, Fudan University. Why we have her today is she is the author of a recent book called China's FinTech Explosion, Disruption, Innovation, and Survival. And having just completed the book, I can tell those of you who have any interest in this su subject that to my knowledge, it's the first book written on this subject in English. There's plenty of stuff in Chinese, but I haven't seen a ton uh, written in English. And it's almost a textbook. It goes over all the different developments uh, that are occurring in the different areas of fintech and in China and talks about how China is developing in areas and has certain advantages over the United States, legacy systems in the United States and regulatory issues in the United States that may be, may be slowing our development, but is absolutely, for those interested in this subject, it's really a must read. So Sarah and I will talk kind of about the book, whet everybody's appetite to then buy the book and educate you on what's going on. But Sarah, you were brave to write this book, I think. First of all, it's a very difficult subject. Second of all, it's a subject which doesn't change month to month, it changes day to day. So talk to us about why you wrote it, who the audience for the book is, and how you dealt with a subject that changes so rapidly. Yeah, um, I wrote it because um, I was authoring different papers on China's shadow banking system. And at the time, peer-to-peer um, -peer lending, this is about 2013, 2014, uh, we saw a big rise in peer-to-peer -peer lending companies. And those were considered to be part of the shadow banking system. And so I started to follow uh, this new fintech evolution that was happening in China. And I found out that it was unfolding really rapidly. There was a lot of money there, which I thought was interesting. Um, and there was a lot of uh, technological development. Um, and so it really interested me uh, to study it further. Um, I was always interested in uh, why small and medium-sized enterprises could not gain access to financial capital um, and how the little guys could get a piece of the action as well. Um, and so I wrote it for people like me who um, are interested in China, interested in finance, um, and want to find out more about it without having to be a scholar in the area per se. Um, and I did include a lot of information, as Steve mentioned, it's almost textbook-like, um, just to kind of get it all in there. Um, but it was extremely difficult uh, because even since it was published, things have changed dramatically. Um, first of all, when I was writing, uh, the peer-to-peer -peer lending companies were going away. They were dropping like flies because they couldn't um, get up to snuff in terms of meeting the, um, the local authorities' requirements. 
um, in terms of meeting the central authorities requirements. And so that was changing. Now they're all gone. And all of the um, really big existing ones have transformed into um, consumer lending or business lending firms. Um, and even since the book was published, uh, the fintechs have started to do a lot more business with banks. And so that sort of cooperation was not quite as present when I was writing the book, although it was there, certainly. Uh, but it's accelerated quite dramatically since then. Talk about the rise and fall of the P2P, the peer-to-peer -peer lending. It, as I was kind of watching it go on in, in China, I felt that you know, the SMEs, which had great small and medium-sized enterprises, which have great difficulty accessing credit, were finally given uh, the ability to access credit, as well as individuals, you know, that the, the big state-owned banks didn't have the credit analysis skills to be able to provide that. So talk about its growth, talk about its death, and talk about the effect it has had on Chinese economic growth. Sure. Um, so peer-to-peer -peer lending is in the news these days because it's gone away and um, the regulator, uh, Gua Xuqing, has stated that he was going to impose further regulations on fintech, this time on the big guys like um, Ant Financial or Ant Technology now. Um, and so peer-to-peer -peer lending did not start off as being a good sort of um, judge of credit risk. Peer-to-peer -peer lending companies started as a guy or a couple of guys who were in a um, living in an apartment and wanted to give out loans. And so they arranged for some people to lend money to others through the internet. And when they looked at credit risk, they would oftentimes physically go to the person's business or to the person's house and meet with them and talk about it, make sure that they were decent credit risk. And that was when they actually did it. Sometimes they just didn't bother to do it. Um, and you know they just <laughs> left it up to chance about what would happen. In a growing economy, this was not as much of a problem, um, but when the economy really started to uh, experience a great slowdown on about 2016 or so, this really started to become a problem um, as uh, people just ran out of money. And so that meant that the lenders could not be repaid. So peer-to-peer -peer lending became more complicated by the fact that it was online and um, a lot of the uh, borrowers started to become more national. And so people in one province, the, the companies who were based in one province could then not easily go to the borrower, I mean, yeah, to the borrower in another province to check out their credit risk. And so this meant that they had to try to get whatever information they could. Sometimes they didn't bother a lot of times. Sometimes they used Ponzi schemes like we saw with a number of fraudulent cases, um, Ezubao being a, um, a major case. And uh, people were upset because eventually they were not able to get their money back. Over time, this really started to change as there were some companies who figured out how to use things like big data and artificial intelligence um, and cloud computing and things of that nature, the ABCD buzzwords that we hear of, um, to understand what credit risk there were. And we had people coming into P2P lending companies um, who were from Western banks, who had experience in large international banks in, in Beijing and elsewhere, who knew what they were doing. And so when those guys came on, um, they sort of 
um, accelerated the process of getting rid of the guys who could not compete, the people who were not following up on credit risk. Those companies just failed because they weren't profitable. And others could not face up to regulations that came online in 2016 and 2017 that seriously cracked down on the peer-to-peer -peer lending co uh, companies. And so, you know, this was, it, it, it's the nature of regulation in China that the government generally allows these types of things, including fraud um, situations to play out before really cracking down on them. And that's exactly what happened with peer-to-peer -peer lending. And now I think the impact is that, and I even see it among my colleagues, is that they feel concerned about the uh, FinTech industry in China, where it's going, what its future is, because the nature of regulation is um, has created a lot of uncertainty. Um, and we saw this even with peer-to-peer -peer lending companies that were working hand-in-hand -hand with regulators to try to decide what future regulations would be, that they themselves had to transform their company, their business models, um, ultimately, and they weren't necessarily big winners as a result. Give us a sense of the scale how and how quickly it went from basically a standing start, zero, to peaking at what level to where it is now. Yeah, um, so you saw um, a lot of companies, like it grew by about 300% um, over just a matter of years. And- um, So what, what are we talking in terms of renminbi? How, what was the total amount when okay. it was at its peak? Um, so we saw about uh, 2,600 companies coming on. Uh, we saw, uh, the number of active investors was 3.34 uh, million uh, renminbi. And um, so the, the scale was in the billions um, in terms of renminbi in terms of uh, borrowing. And, um, you know, so this was, this became really quite problematic. So the loan balance over time was actually it even reached, um, let's see, about 1.7 trillion by 2017, renminbi in terms of the, the loan balance. <laughs> and so it was, it was huge. And um, this became a big risk uh, you know, to the government, which then decided to crack down. Was it a systemic risk for the government? You know, it was not necessarily a systemic risk as much as um, the ant financial situation is that we've seen in the news these days. Um, but it was a social risk. And um, the reason that it wasn't as much of a systemic risk is because the peer-to-peer -peer lending companies were not necessarily very closely related to banks per se. Okay. And so they were sort of, you know, isolated across the country. Some were more national in scope. Um, but, you know, they, I, I think the biggest one was not um, at the systemic level of Ant Financial. Um, but you know there was a social risk. There was a lot of social unrest when people lost their money due to the Ponzi schemes and all of that. When that unfolded, there were lots of protests, and that was really problematic for the government. But there was nothing unique about P two P. In other words, you can have a Ponzi scheme in asset management. In fact, it's more likely to have it, you know, in in asset management than in P to P lending, you could have it in, in theory and in banking, you can have it anywhere. So it wasn't particularly unique to P to P. To P. Do you think that the economy took a hit as a result? When you pull effectively 
what say 1.7 trillion RMB out of the economy? Does the economy and and you've taken it, in my view, from the more productive parts of the economy that the, you know, the the last 41 years it's been the private sector that have created growth in China, not the state-owned sector. So, has that had an effect? Is that part of the reason the China, forget COVID, is that part of the reason the Chinese economy didn't grow as fast as these P2P uh, operations were shut down? Um, you know, that's a good question. I don't know that um, it necessarily caused a huge drag on the economy simply because it was scattered throughout the economy through different sectors. It was small businesses as well as individuals. Um, in some cases, uh, you know, where in previous years, the peer-to-peer -peer lending companies were allowed to guarantee some of the loans. And so ultimately somebody had to bail out the people. Um, and so I think that, you know, people did certainly incur a lot of um, losses, but uh, I don't know that it necessarily rippled dramatically throughout the rest of the economy um, because they were just sort of disaggregated and um, isolated. The, the book obviously deals with much more than, than P2P. So let's go on and, and talk about some of the other issues. And, and one of the things that was so interesting about you know, parts of the book was the, the issue of why China is able to do a lot of this and America doesn't. Obviously we're the National Committee on US-China Relations and that's why we focus on that. But, but some, oddly enough, the, the absence of credit cards or, or not the absence, the, the, the much lower uh, per capita penetration rate for credit cards in China, uh, state-owned banks that kind of didn't do a great job uh, created a market opening for fintech. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say people did not have credit cards and a lot of them just didn't have bank accounts in general. And so it's something that is really dramatically understressed in the media is that, okay, fintech may have its issues uh, in China and we don't know what regulations are, are coming next. But the fact is that um, China went from having under 20% of the population with a bank account to having over 50% of the population with a bank account. And initially this was to be able to uh, sign on um, to um, Alipay and WeChat Pay to make payments. Um, and you know, this allowed many people to actually start banking. People in rural China, um, people who had uh, you know, less access to funds before, now they have a bank account. This can help them to establish a credit history. And that's a big revolution in and of itself. Um, and, uh, and also the government, um, you noted that they don't necessarily provide loans to uh, small and medium-sized enterprises and to individuals. Certainly this was a big issue. And even though the government has for many years pushed state-owned banks to um, give loans to the poor and to create inclusive finance, it really hasn't happened on the scale that the government has wanted it to happen. And I think that's one of the major reasons that um, the government is really interested in maintaining the fintech industry um, because it does allow uh, people to get loans and to um, have 
their credit history better understood using this alternative data um, and using these different types of technology that the banks don't necessarily have. Um, and so I, I think that it, it plays an important role, maybe not right now um, as much as it has in, in more recent years due to the COVID-19 and the downturn in the economy lately, but I think it'll pick up once again, for sure. What happens to the, the legacy banks? Do they, you know, obviously they, they can fail or, you know, the government will back them. They can stop providing services. They can adapt or they can just partner. What, which of those routes do you think gets taken by the, especially the big four? Yeah, um, well, you know, what we have seen is that this fintech revolution, we can call it, has induced banks to um, become more competitive. Uh, they have had to invest more um, in terms of technology, in terms of personnel, um, and it's been harder for the smaller and medium-sized banks to compete in that way. Um, they've also faced a declining commission income due to the sales of funds and insurance um, because of the rise of fintech firms, um, and it's also reduced their share of loans. And so they have found themselves in a position where it's compete, innovate, or die. Um, and so they have done so. Um, the uh, customers of the small banking services tend to be the uh, small and medium-sized customer groups. Um, and they're also the target markets of internet finance. Um, and they can also, the fintech companies can cater to them at lower cost. So this becomes really hard for the larger banks. But what we have seen is that um, banks like the Agricultural Bank of China and ICBC, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China in particular, have really invested a lot um, in fintech. And they've also done collaborations with other fintech companies. They've produced their own sort of products um, to sell their, their goods online. Um, ABC, Agricultural Bank of China, was the first Chinese bank to use facial recognition to verify the identities of its customers. Um, so, you know, this was something that was a big deal in China. Um, they've rolled it out, or other companies have rolled it out to KFC and elsewhere, uh, but facial recognition. Um, ICBC uh, is a really big one. They've invested a lot um, in fintech and they have a whole fintech um, development strategy that started in 2015. And I think the strategy really helped them to um, have a multi-pronged approach. Um, now they do a lot of things online. They offer payment services, they offer financial services and um, investment and financial management. Um, and so, you know, we see that they've really had to adapt um, they're also partnering with other um, technology firms, even outside of, uh, um, you know, just offering services to customers. So, for example, uh, the Bank of China partnered with Tencent in 2017 to set up a joint fintech laboratory. So they're really trying to stay at the very edge of fintech innovation um, just to remain competitive. Of course, the question always is, can oligopolists or monopolists adapt? to a more competitive environment. It's sometimes a cultural issue, which is extremely, you know, having competed against state-owned enterprises in my career and, and uh, phone monopolists and stuff, I'm actually always quite happy to compete with them because they tend to be very slow. Uh, they tend to look to government for solutions. And when government doesn't intervene on their behalf, they, they tend to lose. The, the part of the book that, that I mean, th there's a, 
great section on mobile payments. And you point out something which we're all aware of, but is kind of the basis for the discussion that 95% of mobile payments are handled by uh, Alipay and, and uh, WeChat Pay. That again gets to kind of the, the, the banking issues. That's an oligopoly. If only 8% are other providers. So how can they continue to innovate? And will they continue to innovate or are we gonna see a splintering of that market? Well, we are seeing them continue to innovate um, in different ways. I think um, Ant Financial is an interesting case because um, what they have done is they've decided to, um, you know, their strategy is to go out to different countries and buy up um, payment uh, firms elsewhere and to sort of give them all of their, you know, technology and some of their like business, uh, business capital acumen um, so that those businesses can really um, increase their uh, market share in their local economies. And so that is definitely one strategy. I'd say they have a lot of innovation, especially in their um, business strategies. Um, we also see, you know, Ant Financial continues to do well. Um, you know, that's the whole reason that the Chinese government is cracking down on them because they're becoming sort of this systemic risk, creating systemic risk. Um, but they have attracted a lot of uh, small and micro enterprises. They lent to over 60 million small firms in 2018. Um, and they have a growing um, online merchant banking activity. Um, they have, you know, really quick loan application processing that uses artificial intelligence and big data analytics. Um, they also own uh, small firms like MyBank, which is one of the first um, online banks. So there's a whole bunch of innovation happening there. Actually, um, in economics, it's argued that oligopolies innovate more due to the really like neck and neck competition that they have. Um, but as you said, within the state-owned banks, we see just the opposite happening in some regards. And the systemic risk of Ant Financials because they're borrowing, they're borrowing, they're intermediating effectively between their customer and the banks. And that if they should not have sufficient capital to cover that, it would then redound to the detriment of the banks who were their lenders. Is that? Exactly. And they consider that despite an enormous capital base that they have, and if they'd gone public, it would have even been a bigger capital base. It's viewed as systemic <laughs> risk. It is because, um, you know, the, there are some new rules that are coming out. Um, the idea, I think that, again, this goes with the government's view of, um, of inclusive finance. The government really wants to promote inclusive finance. That also means not only that they want to cater to um, smaller businesses as well as individuals, but also that they want small fintech firms to be able to compete. Um, and so they want sort of a more level playing field, um, which is kind of the opposite of what we saw with peer-to-peer -peer lending because they were looking for more sophisticated <laughs> companies to, sort, to arise during that time. But I guess the, the ultimate idea is that the government doesn't want Ant Financial just to be sort of a, a portal through which loans pass um, because this can create um, systemic risk. Um, and, you know, if the loans get out of hand, if there are, you know, far too many loans and that people aren't able to pay them back, um, then that could create 
you know, a lot of um, downturn, um, a lot of issues as well. And another thing is that, from my understanding, they were also lending to some uh, small banks, um, and so that's that activity is also problematic. Um, so, so do you feel the delay of the IPO was warranted? Well, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily have a particular view on that, um, but I think in terms of the government's view um, of like maintaining inclusive finance, it seems so. Although it's, you know, it's, it's funny how companies go up and down in terms of being close to the regulators and then somehow the regulators um, move away from them, talking about Jack Ma. <laughs> but um, I think that, uh, you know, I think it's just something that we have to take in stride. Um, and it looks like they're gonna level the playing field is, is what this is aiming at. What's so interesting to me, obviously as a, having been a banker for a good part of my career, um, you know, if I had the access to the data that uh, Tencent and, and Ant Financial does, I would be making better credit decisions than I had made over my career. That, that, that data allows you to make better credit decisions and therefore reduce any systemic risk. Because um, often, you know, especially when you're dealing with you know, not with huge, you know, if I was financing a cross harbor tunnel, that wasn't an issue. But when you're financing um, micro loans or other kind of, or SMEs, uh, that data really should affect your uh, NP, your, your non-performing loan uh, ratio. For sure. No, I 100% agree with that. I think out of any company, probably Ant has the most data accessible. Another argument against the Ant IPO is that Ant has too much customer data <laughs> and that there are um, personal security risks involved. Um, that's the first time that I've heard that argument coming out of China because they do collect a lot of data on. Uh, on and is, is the creation of the central bank digital currency uh, an attempt to limit the market share of uh, Ant and uh, WeChat Pay? Um, some people may view it as such, uh, but I don't know that, you know, it is necessarily. So the central bank digital currency is only the currency itself. And it it can come with a wallet um, that the central bank can set up for individuals. People can use their wallets. Um, but also it is supposed to interact freely with other apps. And the idea was that the central bank didn't want to have control over particular apps, that it would level the playing field in terms of different apps that are using um, the central bank digital currency. Um, and so, you know, it, even though, however, um, people say that it's not supposed to compete with things like Alipay and WeChat Pay, it is entirely possible that it will, just because people can use the, um, the central bank digital currency wallet um, as an online or offline uh, payment. Um, and so it potentially could disrupt that, that system as well. The, the book says that uh, you know, see, the central bank digital currency likely would reduce inflation and um, uh, boost RMB internationalization. Can you tell us how that would happen? Sure. Um, and so you know, more people could use um, the renminbi for cross-border payments. 
Um, this is one way in which, um, you know, it could be used. Uh, it it's more lends itself to being able to use for that. So it could help with the internationalization of the renminbi. Um, in terms of inflation, uh, monetary policy could be used more quickly because um, it could just like be it could directly affect the currency um, itself. Um, you know, rather than having to go through any indirect means such as repurchase agreements or whatever. Um, so monetary policy would be more direct. Cross border loans. Um, Cross-border payments could happen more rapidly, and this would increase the uh, internationalization of the renminbi. Do you think there's in the back of the regulators' minds who are introducing CBDC that they're thinking about as we sanction China more and more, and potentially, and we obviously control the SWIFT system, you know, the global payment system, that this could be a crutch in the event that they get sanctioned out of the SWIFT system to actually have a payment system uh, that avoids SWIFT? Um, yeah, uh, you know, it is entirely possible. Um, and, you know, there are um, alternatives to, uh, to SWIFT, even though China still does use SWIFT. Um, and, you know, so definitely this could help with that. <laughs> it's also a way for um, China to monitor funds if they want to track where the funds are going. So it's another way that they can sort of have more control um, not only financially, but also uh, in a social political sense. God, I have so many more questions and I know we're, we're <laughs> it's a great discussion. Um, talk about why the, briefly why the US has lagged in mobile payments and kind of what FinTech means for US-China relations. Sure. Um, so, well, the US has had um, credit cards. China didn't have credit cards. A lot of people didn't have bank accounts and the US had both of those. So a lot of people in the US said, you know, why do we need to use mobile payments? You know, we can just use a credit card. Um, and, and so it hasn't caught on quite as quickly. China sort of leapfrogged in terms of its technology going directly from a cash-based system to this whole FinTech system. Whereas the US had checks and then we had um, credit cards and so on. Um, so it's not as uh, widely used in the US. Um, in terms of uh, US-China relations um, and FinTech, I think that um, the recent years have highlighted a lot of tensions in terms of technology. There's a lot of concern that China is getting ahead of the US, that China has been appropriating intellectual property um, in terms of technology, and that includes financial technology, um, and that it also could potentially um, you know, attack the US financial technology infrastructure if it wanted to, um, there's a lot of that, a lot less focus on potential cooperation. Um, but in terms of the competition, we still see, despite all of the cries that China is killing the US and so on, the US is still ahead of China in terms of AI and um, big data and blockchain um, and so on. But we see that China is rapidly uh, catching up. And I think that that is really the big concern for policymakers. Is is, is the U.S. ahead in terms of using of big data and AI? I, I'm not totally sure that's the case. It depends on what uh, metric you use. So the U.S. has the most AI startups, um, and they also have the most funding. You know, we have Silicon Valley. <laughs> la 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 last question. What should President-elect Biden do in this area? <laughs> what should he do or what will he do? Well, Both. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think that I honestly, Focus on should. <laughs> okay. 
Um, I think it makes sense for, um, for the US to be wary of other countries in terms of technology. We don't wanna have a situation where our basic infrastructure is, um, is in peril due to uh, you know, technical technology security issues and so on. I certainly agree with that. But in terms of um, just regular business relations, I think that um, maybe there's a degree of paranoia that has swept through the US that uh, we need to rein back a little bit. And um, I'm just hoping that Biden will be um, you know, wary of you know, going overboard in terms of the security issues, but also more willing to cooperate with China in other areas. We set out to kind of whet people's appetite to read this book. And if this, didn't, this discussion didn't uh, whet your appetite, then you're not listening. China's FinTech Explosion, it's a fascinating book. This has been a fascinating discussion. Sarah Xu, thank you so much for joining us. I so much appreciate your joining us and I appreciate your educating me by writing this book. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.